At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Good morning, guys. Good to be with you all again. I'm grateful to worship, grateful to open God's Word week after week and join our voices together and praise to the Lord. It is a joy. It is a gift. And uh, we're going to continue to do it. Um, as Christina mentioned, and as I know is on all of our hearts and minds, is this election coming up now less than two weeks away. Our life group met this past Thursday and, uh, of course, discussed and prayed about many of these things. And we thought, man, we meet in two more weeks and it's going to be over in two more weeks. It's going to be past us. Um, Lord willing, it will be past us. Um, so, so it is upon us, and we do want to, as Christina did just now, give ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Um, ask him to help us trust him, regardless of the outcome. Ask him to do the best thing for our nation possible. Not that all of us have all the right answers, but... Um, we do want him to intervene on behalf of our neighbors, our fellow citizens. Uh, so let's continue to do that. This Thursday, if you're able, I'm going to do a Facebook Live event as we did throughout the summer um, at 6 p.m. If you're able to join us, it'll, it'll be posted up there permanently. Uh, but I'm going to do that event probably by myself. Maybe I'll have somebody join me. We'll see. Um, but nevertheless, we're just going to pray for ourselves, going to pray for our families, going to pray for our church, and going to pray for our nation. So this Thursday, 6 p.m., uh, many churches are doing this throughout the area. There was some state legislators that put out the call for people to pray, people to fast on behalf of our nations, not just the presidential election, but uh, all the elections and everything going on, that God would preserve us and indeed help us to prosper in the months and years to come. So this Thursday, 6 p.m., would love for you guys to be a part of that. So we're gonna continue to worship the Lord by hearing from the scriptures, and we are again in the book of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter writing to these churches scattered throughout the Middle East, these discouraged, persecuted believers in Jesus. He's writing to encourage and instruct them and uh, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Just looking at these two verses here. So really trying to focus in and pull all that we can out of these two verses. To set the stage a little bit leading up to where we are in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, try to look at the bigger context again. You remember in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, it's when Peter really begins his letter, and he begins with praise to God. He begins with praise to God for what God has done on our behalf in Christ. What God has done, God, uh, Peter gives him praise for, and he leads us in praise. And then in verse 13, there's a big therefore. In light of what God has done, in light of all that we have, what we have to worship him for, he now calls us to live before him in holiness and to live with our hope set in him. That was chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. He really called us to that. And then in chapter 1, verse 22, there's again some more commands, things to do, specifically that we are to love one another. And we are to grow in love 
for one another. So he gives some commands related to how we relate to God, where to hope in him, where to live holy before him. And then he gives some commands as it relates to how we're to relate to one another, we're to love one another. And then in chapter two, verse four, through chapter two, verse 10, which is where we've been the last two weeks, there's no more commands. He stops giving commands. He stops telling us what to do. And instead, he focuses on who we are, our identity. He gives several different word pictures. He talks about how we are living stones being built into the household of God. He talks about how we are a holy priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. So in chapter two, verses four through 10, where we've been the last two weeks, he gives no commands. He tells us who we are. He affirms our identity as the people of God. Now again, he's gonna go back to the commands. In light of who we are as the people of God, here is how we are to live before the world. Here, we, here is how we are to live before the world. So let's read these verses and we'll dive back into Peter's instruction to the church. First Peter chapter two, verses 11 and 12. There, the Holy Spirit writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who are the most compelling people in your life, and how did they influence you? Who are the most winsome, magnetic people in your life, and how did they do it? How did they win you over? For me, I think about coaches I've had in my life, and I saw their passion, intensity, their drive, and leadership, and it won me over. I sold out and followed them wholeheartedly. I think about the musical influences in my life. My sophomore year of high school, witnessing a Bruce Springsteen concert and the energy and the power and the glory of the boss and the E Street Band, it won me over. Still the best show I've ever seen. And I think about the spiritual influences in my life. My first couple of years at university was the first time I got to know some people who were really living with Christ at the center of their lives, people who weren't just Christian in names, but were followers of Christ. I saw their love for one another. I saw their selflessness. I saw self-control that was foreign to me. I saw joy and peace that made these folks seem like they were from another world. And it made me think, man, I kind of want that. I need that. Who are the most compelling, magnetic people in your life? And how did they influence you? How did they win you over? 
Well, this is a relevant question as we seek to influence the world around us for Christ. It was especially apparent for the first century Christians that Peter is writing to that many in the surrounding culture were antagonistic to the gospel, and many were antagonistic to believers in the gospel. And yet, despite their antagonism, our calling is to share this gospel with them and help outsiders embrace the gospel. So how do we do this? How do we win over a not only disagreeable, but hostile audience? Well, as we look more closely at these two verses, here's what we're going to see. Your life is your witness. Your life is your witness. Think back to my examples. For instance, my coaches. It wasn't them telling me what great coaches they were. It wasn't them telling me how successful we would be. No, I saw their devotion and hard work and commitment to our team. And I wasn't converted to being a Bruce Springsteen fan by reading on the internet about how awesome they are. No, I went to the Birmingham Jefferson Civic Center and witnessed this face-melting rock show. And I wasn't won over by my Christian friends, by them simply sharing the gospel with me. I was won over by the power of the gospel on display through their lives of love, sacrifice, and joy. Church, your life is your witness. The best way we can win over people is by living lives before them, faithful to the Lord. So let's look at this text, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to see this truth here. Starting at the end of verse 12, the apostle writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So you see that. When the Gentiles, in other words, those outside the believing community, when they see your good deeds, they will glorify God. So the implication here is that upon witnessing the lives of gospel believers, these Gentiles, these outsiders, are won over by the gospel itself, and then they join us in glorifying God. And this is a truth that the apostle Peter learned from Jesus himself. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This is Jesus speaking towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this to his disciples. He says to them, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. And that kind of city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. But you put a light on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says to his followers, your good works, your works of love and generosity and compassion, your good works are a light that shines into a world of darkness. And like ships lost at sea are drawn to a lighthouse and the safety of the harbor, unbelievers will see your life and the goodness it produces and they'll join us in glorifying our Father. Your life is your witness. 
If you want to compel people to come in, you must live a compelling life. So let's look at these two verses more closely. And Peter gives us two steps to faithfully bearing witness to the gospel with our lives. Two steps to faithfully bearing witness to the gospel with our lives. First, Peter says, win the battle within. Win the battle within. Look again at verse 11. Peter's going to instruct us that winning over outsiders begins with winning an internal battle. He writes this in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So this word here for passions can also be translated desires. And he calls them passions or desires of the flesh. And flesh can simply refer to our physical bodies, but here it's a more loaded term that relates to the unredeemed, broken part of our existence. That's our flesh. So for example, in Galatians chapter five, the apostle Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. He talks about those in contrast with the works of the flesh. Drunkenness, divisiveness, sexual immorality, etc. So Paul contrasts the spiritual with the fleshly. The works of the spirit flowing out of the new man we are in Christ and the works of the flesh flowing out of who we used to be. This unredeemed part of us. Some of those old desires or lusts still swirl around inside of us. And the apostle says, I think humbly, but also forthrightly, beloved, abstain from those desires. And he raises the stakes here. He says, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. So these passions are not going down without a fight. It's not like these old sinful desires exist in our hearts peacefully. No, they fight to be fulfilled. They're like a salesman that won't take no for an answer. They're like a rival boxer that refuses to go down. These sinful desires wage war against our souls. And so as Christ followers, yes, we are saved We are redeemed, we are regenerated by the Spirit. But it's also true that our salvation is not fully and finally complete. There's still part of our unredeemed existence that lives inside of us. And so the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is not that non-Christians have sinful desires and Christians don't. No, we both can still have sinful desires. The difference is that we are at war against our desires. Before we came to Christ, we were enslaved to our sinful desires. See Romans chapter six. But now in Christ, we still have sinful desires, but we fight them and they fight us. Now, an important question is, what is the object of these desires of the flesh? In other words, what do these desires want? Well, on the one hand, we could say that these desires relate to the desire for anything that is sinful, anything that is outside of 
God's will for our lives. But it seems we may get something of a clue as to what Peter may have in mind more specifically that this first century church may have been struggling with. It comes from the fact that the apostle prefaces his call for them to abstain by referring to them as sojourners and exiles. As sojourners and exiles abstain from passions of the flesh. In other words, as people living in a foreign land, people living as sojourners and exiles, as strangers and outsiders. When that's true of you, there can be a natural desire to want to be accepted. Even if it means you have to compromise your behavior. I mean, imagine if you can, back to your first few weeks and months in middle school or high school. During those days, you are an alien, a stranger in this new place, and you want to fit in. You want to get along. You want to be accepted. Oftentimes, even if it means you have to sin. If you talk filthy, Hey, your filthy talking friends will think, yeah, he's one of us. If you indulge and party, then your indulgent partying friends will think, yeah, he's one of us. If you get all mean girl, then the mean girl crew is going to think, yeah, she's one of us. And now all of a sudden, you belong. You're accepted. It feels good but at what cost? Well, the same thing new middle schoolers and high schoolers go through is the same thing for Christians in this world. We are outsiders, we are strangers, we are exiles here. We're going to stand out for things we believe and activities we take part in as Christians. But if we compromise, we can be accepted. If we tell the world, hey, Whatever you guys say about sexual norms, it's cool with us, then they'll accept us. If we tell the world, hey, whatever you guys say about there being multiple paths to God, that's cool with us, then they'll like us. If we tell the world, hey, yeah, we'll take part in roasting our political opponents and promoting hatred, strife, and division, we talk like that, we'll belong. We won't be outsiders anymore. That's just the thing. We won't be outsiders anymore. We'll be worldlings. We'll fit right in to this world and its systems and its customs and its conduct and its way of doing things, and we won't stand out. We won't be a city on a hill. We won't be a lampstand bringing light to all in the house. Beloved, as sojourners and exiles, As strangers and aliens abstain from the passions of the flesh, the desire to be accepted. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be accepted. It's natural to want to be liked. But what do we do with that desire? Do we find our acceptance before God in Christ or do we go looking for it from other people? Thus compromising who we're called to be. If the witness of our lives is going to be faithful and effective, first, we've got to win the battle within, and then we can win the battle outside. If we win the battle in our hearts, 
resisting sinful urges, then we can win the battle outside. We can win over the world in the way we were meant to. So look once more at verse 12. The apostle urges us to abstain from sinful desires, and then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may ultimately see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So there's a lot here that's important for us to see. The first thing to note is that Peter's words assume our lives are going to be viewable by our non-Christian neighbors. So notice he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. So he's assuming that we as Christians are going to be living and working and shopping and conversing and sharing space with our non-Christian neighbors. And this is important because there are many Christians throughout history and today who take on this hardcore strategy of separation. Hey, we're different from the world and they're different from us, so we're just going to disengage. We're going to have our own schools, we're gonna have our own businesses, our own entertainment, we're gonna leave the city, we're gonna seclude ourselves in some holy huddle so that we and our children don't get infected by anti-Christian influence. But that sort of thinking is decidedly not the way of Christ and not the way of the New Testament church. The apostle assumes we are conducting our lives among the Gentiles. He assumes they are able to see our good deeds, so avoiding the world is not an option. Full-scale separation from the world may be convenient. It might help us avoid the awkwardness of relating to the non-Christian world, but it is unfaithful to the mission God has called us to. Conduct yourselves among the Gentiles, he says. But again, conduct yourselves with honor, So don't just conduct yourselves however you want to. Don't just conduct yourselves so that you can fit in. No, live honorable lives before them. Perform good deeds before them. And in the short run, yeah, they may slander you. They may call you an evildoer, but Peter points them forward to what he calls the day of God's visitation. It's that day that he's concerned about. So this phrase... The day of visitation was a phrase used by the prophet Isaiah, and it relates to the day when God visits the nation of Assyria with judgment. He no longer leaves Assyria to their own devices to abuse their power and oppress the poor. No, he shows up and visits this wicked people with divine justice. Well, the apostle says what happened to Assyria during Isaiah's day is going to happen to the whole world at the return of Christ. And we're not to worry if our non-Christian neighbors slander us or reject us during this lifetime because we're worried about the next lifetime and we want them enjoying and glorifying God with us on the day of visitation. So no matter what they may say of us now or how they may treat us now, let's keep showing love. Let's keep showing patience. Let's keep doing good so that we can win them over for the sake of the gospel on the day of God's visitation. David Nasser grew up in Iran during the 1970s, and this was a period of warfare and bloodshed known as the Iranian Revolution. 
and the traumatic and chaotic experience of the war left David totally disenchanted with Islam, his native religion, and left him totally disenchanted with God altogether. He said of himself during this lifetime, quote, I hated God because I assumed he hated me first. Well, eventually David and his family gained refugee status and were placed in the city of Fort Worth, Texas. Several years later, David's father had started a restaurant in town, a restaurant that happened to be frequented by a group of Christians from a nearby church. And during one stretch of time, David's dad was shorthanded at the restaurant, and as if it was the perfectly natural response to such a dilemma, this group of Christians, without being prompted, started bussing tables, picking up towels, washing dishes, and eventually over time started waiting on customers as well, all without pay for two weeks until David's dad could make up the difference. Now, there's a whole lot more to the story. If you go to Christianity.com and search David Nasser, there's a section called Testimonies. You can read the whole thing. It's a powerful story. There's more to the story, and it was not a straight line from there to faith for David and his family, but these acts of generosity and service created an opening in David's heart that allowed the seed of the gospel to be planted there, and now David is the vice president for spiritual development at Liberty University. And he's a powerful leader for the gospel. One of the things Pastor Chris, our senior pastor at Woodside, one of the things he shares with us all the time is, he says this. He says, good deeds create goodwill, which creates a platform for the good news. Good deeds create goodwill, which creates a platform for the good news. So church, where and how in your life are you seeking to care for and love those who are outside of our faith community? In what ways are you intentionally trying to gain the favor of the non-Christians in your life? And we're not gonna win them over by compromising God's standards and trying to live like the rest of the world. No, we're not gonna win them over either by shaming them for their sin and totally separating ourselves from them. No, the apostle says you can win people over with love. You can win people over with your actions, acts of service, acts of compassion, acts of sacrifice. And this doesn't mean it's always easy. This doesn't mean it's automatic. And that's okay. If we, if we can't control how others feel about God, we can't control whether or not they trust the gospel. Even Jesus himself, Jesus lived the most beautiful, compelling, joy-filled, loving life, and he was crucified. Crucified for the way he lived and the things he said. We're not called to try to convert non-believers. We're called to live faithfully in the presence of non-believers with the hope that they will see the power of the gospel in us and want to believe themselves. God, help us to do this. Lapeer County needs this kind of witness, the witness of lives transformed by the grace of the gospel, lives laid down in acts of compassion, generosity, and selflessness. Lord, help us to do it for the glory of your name. In the name of the Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand, prepare to respond to God's word through song, and I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for the Lord Jesus. God, we're grateful that he came and lived amongst us, a bunch of broken, ungrateful sinners. He came and lived right in the middle of us and loved us and showed compassion and patience and mercy. God, thank you for Jesus. And God, thank you now for the calling you've put on our lives to bear witness to the power of the gospel here in Lapeer County and here in the year 2020. Lord, there is much to lament about our world right now. There's a whole lot to complain about in our world right now. But God, we thank you for Lapeer. We thank you for the United States. We thank you for this time period during our, in a, this time period during our lives that you've given us to live for Christ, to show the difference you've made in our lives. The way we think and talk about politics is different. The way we talk and think about sex is different. The way we engage in relationships is different. The, what we do with our money is different. God, may it be on display, not for us not for the name of Woodside, not for the name of any pastor, but so that on the day of your visitation, when you show up to make every wrong right, we pray for that day that you will be glorified. We pray that many, we pray that every soul in this region, Lord, would glorify you on the day of your visitation. That they would look to that day with anticipation and when you show up, they would shout, hallelujah, he's here. Not with judgment for me. I'm saved by the cross. He's here with mercy. Lord, may that be their response. So God, help us by the power of your spirit to bear witness to the gospel with our mouths and with our lives. Do this in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.